Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 14, Ask the Experts, with Michael Beal and Danny Sell. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Today I'm really happy to uh, presenting the second of our two podcast special, Ask the Experts. And uh, today we've got two cracking experts, two real specialists and proven player developers. Uh, we've got Danny Sell, who was until very recently head of coaching at West Ham's uh, famous academy. And also Michael Beale, who was until very recently the assistant manager Sao Paulo and former Liverpool and Chelsea uh, coach so really privileged to have two top quality proven player developers on the show uh, excited to see what they've got to say I mean this is really what the podcast all about for me when I started up was uh, you know part of it was a selfish thing about wanting to learn and develop myself so really honored and humbled that you know such experienced proven player developers come on the show and share their experiences and you know people who have been there and done that uh, so it's really fantastic uh, it's a really good show I know you're going to enjoy it uh, remember as well, remember uh, mypersonalfootballcoach.com as well as having you know our online technical training program, the Dynamic Ball Mastery program aimed at players. Uh, we've also got the Coaches Pass. So if you're looking for some inspiration, some ideas about ball mastery and 1v1 coaching tactics and lesson plans, uh, try it out. Um, it's growing. We've got users in 20 different countries. So that's going really strong. And uh, we've got also a tremendous... Uh, amount of uh, new podcasts coming up with some really great uh, really great people coming on so that's great so lots going on and without further ado let's get into the show so welcome to a very special show today I've got two of the best proven player developers in the game extremely proud to have Danny Sell and Mickey Beal here Danny how you doing I'm very good thank you Sell. how are you very well thanks Mickey you all right yeah I'm good thanks mate I hope you're both well fantastic so uh, good to have you. So we'll just start off with some of the questions we've had in from uh, our listeners. Uh, first one is, um, so 14 to 18, train the way you play. If all drills have to be high tempo, yes or no, and when, and how do you divide it or fit it into a training day or week? Um, Danny, do you want to go first with that one? Yeah, I think that when you're putting in training week together, you obviously you're preparing players to play in a game. So as much as possible you want your training sessions to be high tempo and, um, and, and match realistic but I think Mickey would, would agree it's really hard to replicate the game so when you devise in your practices and you're putting things together um, you, you're trying to create scenarios where individual players which I think is one of the biggest things you need to work on get specific practice on what they might have to encounter in a, in a match situation um, so there is obviously a lot based around the team but during the course of the week, as Mick will tell you, when you guards the first team taking players off you and whatnot, there's, there's practices where it's more individual and it's more specific to the, the positions. Excellent. Well, Mickey, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would agree with Danny's points. I think that, that, that there's a lot of variables. Um, obviously, when you're planning your week in youth development, you need to make sure that you have a really nice mix and that you have, and you know, that you have the small spaces for. Uh, the ability to evade people and outplay, but you also need the big spaces so that you can get used to the size of the actual pitch you're going to play on at the weekend so it's not a shock to your system. And I think that's difficult in youth development. You can be really organised, but there can be so many variables of players taken away from you and maybe that you don't have the players in your group in terms of numbers. But I think also a, a big aspect of the question you asked is obviously if you train the way you play, always at this intensity of English football where's the opportunity to to maybe practice and be playful and and just practice your craft in terms of your of your skill and your, and your ability and, and your, your ability to improvise so I think that, that really you've got to make sure that that you give the kids the opportunity to do everything in, in the training and therefore planning is very very important but it would be um, silly of me to to answer that I thought that everybody has the perfect environment. I'm sure that 
every coach up and down the country has times where you know you plan and then that plan's thrown out the window that's the great art of being a youth coach of, of able to be adaptable I think that how you communicate with the players can can set the tone for that and, and allow some space for playfulness as well it's setting the boundaries of training early I think with your players so obviously both you guys are involved at the real the top end of, of football and obviously it's a bit different from other everybody else but I mean you you guys have access to those players you know pretty much every day if you like so I mean so how do you how does that re- look because you know it's you know we obviously know we need to get the players hours I mean it's not realistic is it well is it realistic to be playing games the whole time out of, you know if you've got boys two two hours a day or more you know every you know is, is it is it you know unproductive actually to play games the whole time uh, through that whole time obviously from my experience I know that you know working in a high intensity environment you know sometimes good to drop down a little bit focus on your wings and then go back into the to the game situations who's uh Danny you want to answer that yeah I think Mick, Mick makes a great point um about balance and it, it, it you have to give every player an opportunity to to want for a better word make mistakes and, and fail to a certain degree and and sometimes that has to be in a game environment, whether it be small-sided or 11 v 11. And other times it's, it's going to be really small. Um, and Mick alluded to sort of beating players and, and learning their, their sort of their tricks and their, their trade. So, you, I mean, it's a, it's a real specific position sometimes that you have to put the players into to really hone you know, those, those techniques and those skills. Um, and when you marry that up with with, with the small sided games and the eleven v eleven matches, that that's hopefully when you'll see them sort of bloom, if you know what, what, what I mean. But the balance has to be right, and you have to make sure that you give them those opportunities to to, to really hone their craft. So, what about Danny? Say, for instance, you know you've got uh, you know you've you've had a winger, for instance, who's been struggling with his uh, with his final ball in games. I mean, how do you approach that with that individual in terms of you know his week? How do you structure his program to make sure he'd get opportunities to refine that specific particular thing within that team environment? Well, both both myself and me could be fortunate that we, we have access to the players pretty much all day, every day. So, I mean, I try not to take too much away from the the actual training where they get social aspects and psychological aspects from working with the team. There's always individual sessions that we put on, whether that be with a player by himself. So he's just really practicing his technique, um, adding in then some obviously some pressure, uh, some opposition. You might bring some other players in that might have other needs they're working on, might be dealing with crosses, might be defending in one v one situations, and it's really trying to hone that 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 plan for that player, that individual plan, so that he's got specific targets that he can hit. And if if end product is one of those, then it's down to us as the coaches to create that environment where he gets an opportunity to practice make mistakes, sometimes self-correct, sometimes correct with the help of the coaches. But it's really crucial that the, the, the plan's in place for that player throughout the whole week. So, what, Mickey, what do you reckon then in terms of, say, you know, if you're looking on the flip side, you're looking at coaches who maybe only got players once or twice a week and they've got that same problem, what would you recommend for those guys if they, you know, they don't necessarily have the luxury of having the players every day how can they, you know, uh, go to try and solve a problem like that when you've got limited time with the players? Well, I think when you work with anyone in a team sport, there's two different types of training, isn't there? There's you, so it's improving your level of identity as a as an athlete in, in the sport that you're in. And then there's the we element of how you fit that identity into a team. So I think they're the two things that you train every day. I think you have to... You have to uh, create an environment, so you have to almost train or manage an environment that is positive, that people want to be involved in, that's social, that that people love coming to, so it's infectious. And then the two things you're coaching are, right, very specific to you, what do you need to improve, how you're improving it, that's vital every day. And then the little conversations, people think that's very, very complex, but it's not really. It's a conversation over breakfast, it's a walk to the pitch, it's... um, during the drinks break in a session, just reminding someone of who they are and just remind them to keep doing the things that they're good at or maybe remind them of an area that they want to work on. That's a lot easier as the players get older um, because they they have a bit more of an identity um, than they do when they're young where it's much more of a broader spectrum. But, but it's then taking that, you know, that very personal situation about developing yourself 
And then it's like the we, how do you make that uh, effective inside the team? So it's a balance of the two. But uh, for me, every day um, is just balancing that. It's, it's what the players need and what they want. So the players need to improve certain aspects individually, but they want to play a game. So it's trying to marry the two together. And the best coaches uh, just have a knack of doing that. And I think that that's a big part of coach education, communication, how to communicate, how to inspire, and then getting the players' wants with their needs linked together. I think if, if you can do that in a, in a session, then you are an outstanding coach, in my opinion. I suppose that's the tricky bit, right? Is that, you know, you've got kids for a little time, you want to be playing as much game as possible, you know, get them opposed, get them having fun, but then, you know, how do you marry that with actually trying to address that that young, um, that player's uh, individual technical deficiencies, if you want to call it like that? What do you think, you know, what, any other any other things you could do, Danny, to try and remedy that for so if you've only got the players in a short time? I think if the environment, like Mick alludes to the environment, if the environment's right, the players, the players want to deal with those situations anyway. They'll come up with their own little challenges that they want to work on. And if they feel free enough to speak to you and be honest with you about where they're actually currently at with their development, then you as a coach, it comes easier. Because when you're dealing with players and, and, and they, they have fear and they're worried, um, you, you find it really difficult to, to engage them. I mean, Mick alluded to engaging the players and making them feel like they want to have fun and enjoy themselves. I mean... That's where the environment's created by the coach. And I think that with the, the new style of coach that's coming out with the advanced youth awards and, and the, the new coaching styles, a lot of emphasis on psychology and on the social aspects, children becoming more free to, to kind of self-correct and, and, and learn. So it, it all comes down to environment. I 100% agree with Mick on that. If the environment's not right, then you, you're going to struggle no matter how good the player is, to be honest. Well, I mean, are you are you sort of you talk about self correct there? Are you happy for players to self correct? I mean, look, you you've worked at one of the best academies in world football in terms of you know their player development track record. I mean, so how how long do you give a player to to self correct? And when do you you know step in and say, look, you know, where can we these are something we can do to help you do that addressing a technique. I think that it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint, and patience is a real key with these players. And sometimes you watch sessions and, and young coaches, which which we, we were all were there. I was there. I definitely made mistakes like this when I was first starting out. Is as soon as you saw something, you stop the session and you want to talk to that player and you want to help him because not because you want to show off, but you actually genuinely want to help the player. But there are times when you know what, let him make the mistake. Watch him a couple more times, and I've, I've seen it more and more as, as I've been involved in the game. A lot of these players sort it out themselves. And then obviously, if it gets to a stage where he's repeatedly making the same mistake over and over again, then I think that's more of an individual thing where you might have a chat with him, like Mick said, those important drinks breaks, those little walks around the training ground, lunch, whenever you've got access to the player, you can have little chats there. We're fortunate that we've got a fantastic analytical system now where players can watch all their training sessions, they can watch all their games, um, and it's a great tool for them to use. So, but patience is a real key. So it, you'll be surprised the amount of players that actually, you know what, they kind of know the mistake and within themselves, they've probably got the, the attributes to correct it. I think that's a great point. Looking back when I was a younger coach as well, that was one of the things I first noticed about academy football when I first went in was that actually, you know, the importance of just letting them play, let the ball keep going rather than stopping starting, you know, ball running time being one of the key things in the you know, most important factors in that in that level of football. All right, lads, just quickly on to the next one then. So look, you guys both work at such a, at the top end of the of the spectrum, if you like, and have done. So what would you talk about, you know, how much time do you spend on technique and how much time do you spend on tactics in your week? Or is it, you know, would you say if you were going to, uh, you know, summarise that? Uh, that one to Mickey first. I think it's like, um, it depends on the age group, uh, but each club will have like a, a philosophy and a philosophy is not a formation, it's like preferences for playing the game. And, and so I think they come out, that becomes a bit like a coaching vocabulary that comes out in your sessions without you necessarily having to work on it. Um, you know, even with Liverpool under 23s, we never really worked in uh, enough in 11 v 11 situation because of the size of the group. It was more about fine tuning the individual. So. But even when we played a 5v5 game, we had some real clear 
ideas and our preference and trying to play and the type of passes we'd play and the type of movements that we would make to receive or or just in our in our aggression to counter press him because both managers there in, in, in Brendan Rodgers and Jurgen Klopp were very much onto that. And it was the same at Chelsea before that and now Sao Paulo. Like you, every day is not a tactical day, but even within say uh, 5v5 or 66 possession, the the preferences for the club or for the coach at that time in terms of the style that he wants would come out in your coaching points and your coaching vocabulary. And then it's about coaching each player um, to make them more effective in it. So it's a it's a com- I think that the in terms of coaching technique, I think at every single age group there's a need for isolation because I think with isolation becomes a, a thinking time. And I think that's really important. And uh, I love that quote from Michael Jordan about, you know, you about practicing. And, you know, you can take 100 shots, but if you take 100 shots the wrong way, you're just getting better at doing something wrong. So I think, you know, David Beckham wouldn't stay outside taking free kicks or working on how to strike the ball if work in isolation wasn't, wasn't important. And, and I think that's how you fall in love with a football when you're young. And that's what I see here in Brazil, why people fall in love with playing football because it's very much starts with a boy and a football, very simple. And then I think as you get older and you get in more of a professional environment, of course it has to all link together. And again, um, I think a hell of a lot of uh, coaching comes down to communication and then the use of football as a simple game, not a complex game. You, you know, the use of simple rules like the real game is and not veering too far away from it, but being fantastic in how you probe players and how you question them and the situations you put them in. So I'd love to see coach education go down the route of communication rather than the route of tactical uh, information because, you know, we've done that for a number of years and it's not very, it's not got us very far in my humble personal opinion. Lovely. So, uh, what, Danny, what about you, mate? Technical, technical, and tactical work through the week. How would you balance that? And you know, what's the averages if you were going to stereotype your work? I mean, to be honest with you, tactical. I think it's almost like like we kind of alluded it to, to it a little bit with Mick that it's kind of becoming extinct a little bit. Tactics. It's more about game understanding because what our our jobs have always been is to try and produce a player that's going to play for our first teams. And Mick's alluded to two managers that he's worked under. West Ham have had several managers in my time at the club and, and Charlton before that. And you, you start to talk tactics. You could be leading the players down, down a bit of a dodgy path, to be honest with you, because what you see as tactics might not be what the first team manager wants. So it's about understanding. Understanding when, when to press, when not to press. Understanding, get, making sure they're getting inside the pitch to stop the players from playing through central areas. It's the intensity, it's the type of work that's involved with, it's about taking on responsibilities, knowing your roles and responsibilities. So you might be playing against, I don't know, a, a very quick winger if you're a fullback and he, he likes to come inside the pitch and how are you going to make him work with that specific player? And that's when it breaks down, it becomes more individual. And like, like Mick saying, obviously Mick's fortunate that he's been working with the first team environment at Sao Paulo and that, that probably is a lot more prevalent. Um, but for a basis of a week, I mean, we try to utilise every t- every opportunity we get. So we there's all, obviously a lot of scepticism over the, in the moment about um, sports science in the game. Um, I'm fortunate that the sports scientists I've worked with have been very open to making sure that our warm-ups and whatnot are football-specific. So we do a lot of technical work within that, sometimes opposed, sometimes unopposed, um, sometimes with pressure, sometimes without pressure. So then when we get into more possession-based sessions, um, small-sided games, whether you're doing a phase of play, functional practice, however you want to term it these days. And then it's more about the understanding. And and when you're doing, whether you're doing 3v3 or 5v5, 7v7 or 11v11, as Mick said earlier, you you kind of try to get your core principles out of how you, as a club within your philosophy, feel that the players should be implementing those responsibilities. And so, what's what's your thought, Danny? Then on you know on isolation and doing technical work in isolation. Obviously, like what Mickey talked about, it's a big subject at the at the current time. I was, I was fortunate. I saw um, a presentation recently, regards to a guy called Joe Edwards. I'm sure you both know him at Chelsea, and he he did a study out in America about the NBA and about the NFL and 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 how individual and 
and um, specific their training is. Now, obviously, football is a variable sport. It's a lot more variable than American football and basketball. A lot of a lot of set plays are played within those games, but there's definitely value for 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 practice in isolation because I've not seen a uh, a documentary or read an autobiography of a, of a super player or one of the world's best players without them saying about how much they practice by themselves. And there's, 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 there's something to be said for that. And we, we all want the decision-making options and we all want those within the game and we understand that. But a player taking a bag of balls out after a training session when everyone's gone home and, and working on a specific technique that he wants to, to hone and really make a, a super strength if you want I don't see that. I don't see there's any harm in that. And if a coach can go out and assist that, whether that's just to be served in and whatnot, I think that the, the players can only benefit from those situations. I think you guys, you know, as well as myself, we're lucky to work in those environments when we've seen those elite players, and so we can understand that what these are the sorts of things they do anyway. Like you say, it's just it's a logical, common sense thing, isn't it? You see the guys after training practicing ball striking, or like Mickey, you mentioned David Beckham whipping the ball. This is what I think people do. So it's just like I think you like you, you like you guys allude to is about having a balance, isn't it? And knowing you know how to mix it and have have a real balance of those about your approach. Uh, okay, fantastic. Let's move on to the next question then. What's what well, this sort of leads on to that? Uh, what's your thoughts on constant practices that help with triggers and then into small sided games, which leads to varied and random practices? That's to you, Danny, first. Um, it's a real difficult one because I mean. The, the kind of new methodology around coaching is all about being involved and, and multiple decision-making opportunities and making sure the players can think for themselves and problem-solve, which I'm, I'm, I'm fully behind that. But then you look at um, Antonio Conte's Chelsea team this season and, and how practical they probably were in everything they did. They they had a they had a, a real understanding of every little role that they had within the team. And when you speak to the staff at Chelsea, which I'm sure Mick has done over the past year, he, he's very, very, very fixed on repetitive practice. A lot of the time unopposed. These are the triggers we want to do. So it's hard to dismiss that. Me personally, I, I kind of like it to be a little bit more free in the sense of opportunities to to make decisions and to, to problem solve and, and know that you know what I've got, I've got to deal with this situation myself um, as, as the player and 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 not that the trigger situations are not relevant but I think you can get those out within your small-sided games and with you within your possessions whether you pull the player out and you can have a chat with him on the side whilst the session's going on and make him maybe look at what's going on have a little word walk within the session. I think that helps sometimes when you're actually in the session. You can actually start to see where the players and see what the players see themselves. And obviously, with the use of video analysis, you can really start to hone in on right. Okay, what's happened here? Well, the centre midfielder's got his head down. He can clearly about to strike the ball. Well, there's your trigger, isn't it? There's your time to react. Start start to adjust where you, your start position or, or, or where you want to be. So, with for me, it's it, it's best to be done within within the small-sided games and within the possession practices where they've actually got to make decisions based on the here and now as opposed to trying to predict what's going to happen in the game. And uh, Mickey, what's your thoughts on that? I'm worried about long words in coaching, if I'm honest, uh, gents. I, I really worry about them because obviously I've, I've been in the game for, for quite a while as a, as a junior player in an academy and then obviously... Um, at the two or the three clubs that I've worked at and long words like <laughs> they um, they confuse me <clears throat> so I wonder if they confuse the younger coaches out there and you know the words of trigger and different types of words that the FA are coming out with now and I haven't been through these courses with the FA uh, in the last couple of years so I'm not up to up to speed them but I would just say that um, it's really important that that when when you're you're dealing with a kid now, if you're a parent, and I think when you become a parent, I'm not saying that everybody should go out and, and get their wife or girlfriend pregnant overnight. I think, uh, but when you become a parent, you you definitely have a different view, and, and it does push you on again as a coach because you just look at your children and you think, right, what do they need, um, and what do I want from my son or or my daughter going into a club or or going into a sport and being coached by somebody. And I think what you want is you want it to be a little bit personal and you want that person to be very positive 
and you want that person to be very encouraging and you want that person to be careful when they give feedback because kids take things very literal. And I think that a lot of coach education is it's very easy to go on the internet now and see a Pep Guardiola or a Conte or part of their session or a Simeone or any of these famous coaches now, Pochettino, Jurgen Klopp. But there's not enough education out there for people that are working with younger developing players and how to, and how to bring them on. So we see these sessions at the end, and it's very important that you know Conte's in in a situation at Chelsea, and then Premier League managers where they have to organise very very talented football players, talented football players that if they receive a ball with pressure from the side or from behind can handle it because they're worth millions of pounds and they're in their mid twenties or or even older in most cases, and they're international football players. They are the top of the top. So we can't look too closely at that for how to develop developing players between the ages of 14 and 21. I think we need to look specifically at that and, and try to marry the two as the players get closer to it. But the, the most, in, it'll always be for me that um, if you plan well and you use, if you're lucky enough to have staff or an assistant and you split yourself, you don't try to be Superman, then I think you can get around the players. And I think the younger the players, in most cases, people will say more difficult. I say more easy because the, the spectrum is wider. You know, you're teaching a bigger base. Therefore, it's not as specific as it is as you get in a professional club between the ages of maybe 14 and 21. And now you have to be really specific. Otherwise, this boy is not going to fulfill his dream. People talk about fulfilling potential, but I think it's the adults that have a big part to play in terms of opening the doors to potential. I think when you're dealing with a young kid, it's very much about their dream and, and how you can help them towards it. And so I think it's, it's the, the relationships are huge. I think that's a, a player will take anything from a coach uh, in terms of advice and guidance if the relationship's right. And so I think that's, that's huge. I, I just worry about the long words, gents. You know, I, I don't understand them. And, and yet you'd think someone that worked in, in two or three very, very good professional clubs would understand all these concepts. I don't. It's very confusing for me. So, so um, OK, moving on then. And that. So um, here's, an, here's an interesting question. Is it true that academies only focus on the top three players in each group? This is something I've heard. Ex- parents have asked me, actually. Over to you, Mickey, that and that first. Well, each academy to the self, but in the two academies that I've worked in, I think in terms of, of that aspect, it's not working towards uh, the best three players. I, I think that changes. You know, if you're working on defending one day, is that different to when you're working on attacking? If you're working on passing and receiving, I think what I think that's a a, a quote that or, or a saying that's maybe been mis, mis misread. I think what you try to do is you try to push the players on. So you try to work to the ability of the player. Um, at the top end of the group and you try to set challenges for all the players that are slightly above their level to push them on. There was a lovely thing that Alex Inglethorpe used to say that a player needs, you know, he needs 25% outside his comfort zone where he's struggling, but he also needs 25% where it's underneath, where he can where he can have lots of success. And in the 50%, the big bulk of their work needs to be at the relevant level. And when we speak to ex-players, like Mike Rowan used to love playing for his score and his county and his district because it enabled him lots of opportunities to shoot and score goals and all different types of goals. Um, and then obviously when he would have his game with Liverpool, the level would go up a little bit. And if he played up an age group, the level would go up a little bit again. So it, it's a really interesting thing, this, about uh, challenges and that. But that wasn't the case at Chelsea or Liverpool and it's not the case here in the academy at Sao Paulo. I think that in everything that you do, you try to set it just above the level of the players because kids love challenges. We all do as people. We love to challenge ourselves. Danny, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's easy for, for uh, parents to, to, to look at the situation at clubs and think that there's, there's three players that, that or four players or two players, whatever happens to be in that age group, that get favoured if you want or get or focus on them. But like Mick's saying about the challenges, what's right for one is not right for another. And if you've got a boy who's, who's very, very comfortable, if not finds it too easy within his own age group, um, and for him to be challenged and to give him his best opportunity, he needs to train with another age group or he needs to, to play up in another age group, 
then that's for that specific individual. Um, I'm sure there's been cases that, that you've all come across that where actually the player playing down has been the one who's been the most successful of that age group. And now, now some clubs, the culture would be, oh, if he's being put down in a younger age group, it, it, it must mean he's not doing very well. Well, no, it's specific to that individual. And I think the clubs have to, they have to be realistic that the percentage of players that actually are going to go on to play academy football, uh, sorry, play Premier League football is very low. So when you have got a player that needs to be pushed, they need to push him. It's the right thing to do for that player. And the bottom line is you've got to try and give exposure to these children so that people can see them and see what they're, what they're able to do and what they're capable of doing. So the first team managers start to take notice. And now that player might be at 16 because he's the top of the bunch. It might not be until he's 22, 23. So it's a real hard one. And I do understand where parents are coming from with that. But I think if you actually really got involved in the meetings around the clubs, you'd see that there is plans and there is work done being done on every individual and whether they're perceived to be at the lower end of the group or the top end of the group. I think that everyone would want those players to progress and get better and succeed, whether it's at their club or another club. So I, I, I do see the issue, but I don't think it's like that, not in the clubs I've worked at. Well, what do you think, Danny, then? Um, you talked about playing up there, obviously... As you know, this is seen by many of the parents as like the holy grail, uh, rightly or wrongly. You know, they see, you know, my kid's playing up, then obviously this means, uh, you know, then people, the parents measure themselves basically on other players playing up and stuff like that. Obviously, as you know, in playing up is not always the be on end all. What other ways are there to challenge players apart from playing up? Because as you know, that might not be the uh, right thing for a certain player. It depends what, what you're challenging them with. And are you challenging them technically and tactically? Are you trying to do a psychological challenge? Is it a social challenge? Are you challenging them physically? And, and, that's where, and, I, and I always revert back to that to, to the individual. What, what, what does that actual player need? So if it's a player who is struggling socially, you might actually play him down and say, right, you're captain today. You need, to, you need to lead the group. You need to talk to the group. You need to organise the set pieces. You need to maybe talk to the players in the change room before after the game at half times if it's a psychological test you might put him in, a, in an area where he's taken out of his comfort zone um, so it's a real difficult one because a lot of the time when you've got a, um, a player who has potential uh, the best way to really challenge him is to, is to get him working with players of, of an equal standard if not better um, but then recognising obviously that extend and consolidate bringing him back down so there is this multiple ways in which you can challenge a player in training games. Just you have to have a specific plan for that player and know what his strengths and weaknesses are, because depending on what you're actually challenging him with, that will massively depend on whether it's a a play up, play in his own age group, play down. You might leave him out. You might challenge him, see what he's like. How does he react to being left out of a session, left out of a game? So there's there's, there's lots of different ways and means of doing it. Mickey, what's your thoughts on that? And also, Mick, thinking about, you know, if you're a grassroots coach and you've got, you don't have the option to play up and play down, what's, what's, what could you do? I think that one thing that I always thought in, in the academy is like goalkeepers. Like, and I will come back to the question. In terms of goalkeepers, they get to the big goals too soon. So this lovely little goalkeeper that, that's brilliant in mini soccer, and all of a sudden he gets to the age of 12 and he's been this massive goal. And all of a sudden it's like every shot is impossible to save. And it's very hard for a kid to understand that and take that in and remain confident. So I think that, you know, you want a good goalkeeper to take command of his area and you want him to be a big personality. You look at the best goalkeepers that have ever played the game, they sort of control the back four. Now, that's very hard socially for a boy of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 within his peer group and also a goalkeeper's development is later than an outfield player so I've always thought goalkeepers should play down and should get to the bigger goal a little bit uh, slower than what they do at the moment and also at the same time build the necessary social skills that are essential to play that position so I always think that I have nothing against players playing up or down I just think that we need players that are solution based so therefore if you have a small if you have a big player playing against a small player. So if it was me and you saw and I was an early birth or an early developer and you're a late developer. Now in the confrontation or the 1v1 draw, I'm not really thinking so. I know I can boulder my way past you with maybe a little bit more power and strength, a little bit more speed in this moment. 
without maybe having great um, mechanics. I can just, I don't have to think, I'm not solution based. So always when I was um, interested to him when I was back at Chelsea was selecting players, my big thing challenge to the scouts and coaches were like, what's he good at and why is he good at it? So if you gave me a young boy that you said I've scored a lot of goals and he's always scoring them outside the box and I started to look at the key facts around the player of his day of birth, of his physical size or, or whatever, where he was in his maturity, I would probably be able to tell you in, without actually watching the boy too much whether that was a, was a circumstances or was a quality. And I was very interested in the smaller later developers because I think they're solution based. So you as a smaller player coming up against me, you might not be able to outstrength me or outrun me. So then you have to be very clever with how you manipulate the ball or maybe use the second or third player to pass and move to outplay me. So I think that's it. I think they're the challenges you're looking for. I think if you have a player that, that's getting by on physicality rather than quality, then you have to make a, judge, a judgment that is that phys physical quality is going to stay with him for the rest of his life. Is he just a natural athlete or will players catch him up in time? And if you make that decision that you think players will catch him up in time, then you have to challenge him. There has to be someone else in the group that you can challenge him and put him up against so that he does become solution-based. And maybe you need to keep challenging this player in other areas of his game to take him away from these dominant forces that you know are not going to last the test of time. But I think that comes with experience, and that's why I think young coaches need mentors around them. Um, my big thing for grassroots coaches is is more difficult for them. And, I, and if I'm a grassroots coach, in this moment in time. I'm not veering too far away from the game, if I'm honest, Dan. I think that, you know, if you don't know, don't make out you do know and confuse the confusables. I think young kids are very can, can be very confused about football, but when they come to your training, you have a big advantage because they're there because they want to play football. You know, and, and that doesn't mean, that's the same for a grassroots player as it is for a first team player. You know, but if you're in charge of a grassroots player now, then the kids are not playing enough outside their houses every single day. So when they come to you, give them time to play the game and maybe just influence them on your communication or the circumstances you put them in. But I worry about grassroots coaches going down the route of drills and practices because if you only have an hour or two hours a week and that's the only active um, time these kids have physically, don't waste it talking. Nice one, fantastic. So um, moving on then. Um... How do you uh, coach and introduce pressing? What age? What what is steps of doing that? Where would you start? Well, how, what's, how do you, what's the process of going along to that? Obviously, it's, it's a big thing now, recently. Uh, Mickey, do you want to talk about that first? Yeah, I think you have to understand. Um, we're talking about pressing. Obviously, we're talking about defending or a desire to go and win the ball back. And then you have to, whenever you talk about defending, you have to talk about space. So... Um, what space are you trying to protect? Are you trying to protect space behind, or are you trying to protect space in the middle, or are you trying to, to press further forward? So I think them things, it's important. If you're talking about individual pressing, then the, the best attitude you can give for any real young kid is, if you're the nearest to the ball, go to, go to press it. But I think then as you get older and join into a team game, that's not necessarily the case. You don't go and press on your own, you press together. Or if one player presses, the next one goes, he pulls the train and then pulls a link to the next carriage, the next player to follow behind. So I think you can coach the mentality, which is a great mentality that if you lose the ball to react or if you're the closest to the ball to go to try to win it back. I think you can coach that from the beginning. And when I say the beginning, when, when kids first play a game, okay, nearest the ball, go and try and get it back. <clears throat> And that can be like a, a positive behaviour you're trying to look for in players, you know, a desire or a mentality you're trying to create. And it becomes, it's, it's a difficult question because it becomes more complex as you get older because defending is much more about space um, and, and what space you want to protect and, what, and, and, and where you maybe desire to win the ball back than, than anything else. Um, but I, I honestly believe there's lots of benefits behind uh, when the kids first start teaching them to react. I think reactions and, you know, we say the word transition, don't we? But actually just reacting, you know, like a light switch, uh, turning on and off. There should be no delay between having the ball and losing the ball. I think they're qualities you can teach young kids from the ages of 8, 9, 10, 11 when they first play the game. I think that that's, that's just a behaviour you're looking for in people. 
Danny, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I 100% agree. You, I don't think there is an age limit on it. You, at the end of the day, the boys want the ball. When, when your team's playing, you, you, you want the ball. And it's a, it's a real easy habit to generate. And I think that's, that's the key to it, is making sure it's a habit. It's something that comes ingrained in them, that when they lose it, they want to get it back. And, and as, as Mix alluded to earlier, you, you kind of, as they start to get through the system and the, the higher level they play and the, and the better they become, you can really start to hone those skills down on the actual decision of when I can press and when I can't press, are we in a good enough position? With regards to actually starting to instill it in the players, you, you can do that almost from day one. Because any little kid you watch running around the park with his friends, as soon as he loses the ball, he wants to get the ball back. And if you praise that, and really instill that kind of habit into him that when I when I haven't got it, I want it back. Then the the rest becomes quite easy because I'm, as I'm sure you'll both agree, whenever you come across players that you're really struggling to to engage and motivate, it generally comes down to the psychology side of them, the psychological side. They they, they lack desire, they lack determination, they lack that willingness to want to do things. Now, if you can really kind of enforce that at a young age and and reinforce that at a young age. You're onto a winner because the, the the honing of the decision making becomes a lot easier when they get older. And so, I mean, when does that change, Danny? I mean, obviously, no, we obviously work a lot on that in the younger age groups. When I was there, about winning the ball back, being tenacious, you know, trying to get the ball back within, you know, some clubs say within six seconds or whatever. I mean, when does that change though to a, a more mindful type of pressing when you're working uh, pressing as a team in twos or threes? And what age would you recommend starting that? And what's the process of of introducing that? Well, again, I don't think you can actually put an age on it. It goes down to the, the individual player because you'll you'll have groups where there's there's natural leaders within the group and they set a real tempo and a standard to whether it's a training session, whether it's the game, and they do that at a young age because it's, it, it seems to be a, like an inherent trait that they have. So you can almost utilise those players to to bring the other players on, but. A, but what age that is, I don't think you can really put put a finger on that until until you see the group of players that you've got and know the personalities that you've got. Then I think when you're starting to look at, okay, I've got two or three leaders within this group and they really understand how to go and win the ball back and socially they communicate quite well with their teammates and they can really start to to put some pressure on the opposition straight away with some organisation. Um, that's when you can really look at maybe practicing that in within sessions and actually talking about okay now is this a good time to press uh, but to say like whether it's a 10s 11s 14s 16s 18s it's really difficult to say it depends on the individuals and the personalities within the group okay excellent so that moves us on nicely to our next question sort of associated um, with such an emphasis on creative players being produced are coaches ignoring limiting defensive development do you want to go ahead with that one Danny first I, I would say 100% there's an element that there's coaches who, who kind of completely dismiss defensive sides. I've watched sessions over the past four or five years and, 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 and mentored coaches myself, which I'm sure you both have had to do as well. And I've, not, I've never seen them put a defensive session on or make a comment on defending. Um, I, I don't think it's about really emphasising that right, this session is going to be just about us defending, but it's about making sure that players understand we talked about pressure, winning the ball back, how we're going to do that, what kind of characteristics you need to do that. Okay, you need to be brave, you need to, to want to get it back, you need to have desire, you need to have determination, you need to be willing to hurt your body because at times you look at the John Terry's of the world and the Rio Ferdinand's, these players are willing to put their bodies on the line to defend um, and, and, and highlight these characteristics. And again, you can start doing that at a really young age and start to, to implement these these social and psychological uh, elements of the game into the players, so they understand the, the, I suppose the the, the needs within it within it to actually be a defender, because you're all defenders at the end of the day. I mean, it's a cliche I know, but when you haven't got the ball, you you're all defending, aren't you? So, what a couple of things more there, Danny. Just um, how much of your week do you split between defensive and attacking work, and also do you think there's a an element of you know you get that natural defender you know you get those people who have naturally have that inclination and some that necessarily don't and then can you coach that yeah I mean natural defender I mean I'm fortunate enough to have worked with a lad called Declan Rice over the last few years Mick would know him he was at, he come to West Ham from, from Chelsea um, the boy's a natural defender and and 
I, I, I do use that word with a little bit of caution because that hasn't come easy to him. Just because he's, he, he's a natural doesn't mean that he's actually just suddenly become this fantastic defender. He's had to work very hard at it. But when when I say natural, I'd say more his, his characteristics, his, his, his persona on the pitch, his desire to want to get the ball back. And I think he would be a naturally good defender whether he was a centre-back, centre-midfielder or centre-forward because he just has a desire to want to get the ball back. Um, I mean, with regards to um, the, the other sort of side of it, you're kind of looking towards... Um, when a, when a player, when you've got a player who is is outstanding on the ball, wants to be creative, you, you he has to understand that there's not many managers in the world that are going to let you stand on the pitch and do nothing. So they have to understand that when we lose the ball, there has to be a real work ethic, whether it's for a team, whether it's to actually try and win the ball back yourself, whether it's to drop in, whether it's to to, to fill in a position because someone else has gone to the press. And when you're balancing up your working week, I think it's almost got to be 50-50. And, and you can you can do that within every session. You can have a defensive element in every possession. You can have a defensive element with every sports-related game you do. You can have a defensive element in almost every technical session that you do. Because as soon as you put opposition in there, you have a defender. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough as a coach at West Ham called Paul Heffer. He's, he, he's a defender himself. And... I was one of those coaches who was guilty of, I loved putting on a possession and focusing on the fact that we've made 25 passes and how wonderful we all are. Well, then and you actually start to break it down. The reason you've probably made 25 passes is because the defending's not been anywhere good enough. And we, one of the, my key messages within my sessions is the tempo of the session is not set by the team that are in possession. The tempo of the session is set by the team that's defending. Because if they're not doing it properly, then you're not going to get a good tempo. Mickey, your thoughts on that? Are we are we neglecting the defensive side, and uh, how much time would you work on that in your ses- in your week? It's not glamorous, and every coach wants to be loved by the players they work with. So it's uh, you know it's, it's something that can be lost. But I think you've got to make defending fun. I think you've got to. It's, you, you're still in my next blog post, by the way. Here, so you killed me a little bit, sore, but I'm going to continue. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> basically, mate. Um, a big thing that I do now is whenever I join or receive a new team in the academy, or like when I join Sao Paulo here, the first thing I look at and say, right, how many defenders do we have? How many people are actually good at defending? And then I try to improve it because I think you can make big gains pushed by that. Because everyone has to defend in their own way in the position they play in. And it's very important to develop winning mentality through that. So if you go back to winning your 1v1 draw, and if we win seven out of the 11, we've got a good chance of winning and trying to make each 1v1 very personal, that becomes uh, something you can judge at half-time at the end of the game. Did you win? And that means that every there's both sides of the game. Now, I think that what's really, really important is that um, each player learns a little bit more about defending because I believe in the saying, I think it's a Wenger or a Don Howe saying that, you know, you attack from the back and you defend from the front. So like Danny says, everyone's involved. But... I was a winger when I was at Charlton as a young kid, and Neil Banfield was one of the coaches then, and obviously Terry Wesley, who worked with, uh, uh, who's working with Danny. So, in terms of how they taught me to defend, because I hated defending as a kid, was uh, how to block space and how to block passing lines and how to just shorten the pitch. And once they broke that down for me, defending became much easier. I was never a great defender. I was a boy that was a winger who loved to dribble and cross and play 1v1. And defending was never taught to me in a nice way. But defending different for each position and different for each person. But I think that you you can... How you break it down for a young player and how you describe... You know, and one bit of advice I'd maybe give out is you can link how someone defends for the team... Uh, 100% to how much they want to win personally and how much they want the team to win and I think that's really I think that's a winner with young players uh, okay well obviously you don't want to win if you're not willing to help us win the ball back you're not willing to help us shorten the pitch or you're not willing to help us press so I think they're little words that's why I say communication is everything in football 
um, how clever you are at putting across a message, understanding how a young player will, will receive that message, understanding how each individual person might receive that message. So I think that's really important. But yeah, for me, 100%, we, we, can, we can be guilty of neglecting it. But in every practice that you work on 1v1 attacking, someone's got to defend. So there's a beautiful chance if you work with a co-coach to bounce off each other. Um, and, all, and and have one coach one aspect and one the other. But you know, having spoken to me before, that my belief on football is one is is the ability to play one v one, but players thinking always in the two v one. So whether that's going to help your mate with or without the ball, and the ability to to make sure that no matter who you come up against, that you can have a positive positive effect in winning that one v one. So. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that I'm thinking about constantly at the moment because we, we're constantly talking about developing character and personality and there's people that say you cannot develop it. I think there is, but it's based on the environment that the player starts his football career in, that you can improve it. Interesting. So this, that leads us nicely on to our next question then. So what are you looking for when scouting younger players, traits, tendencies, techniques, etc.? So look, when boys come into you, given to you by the recruitment officer or whatever. What's, what think, sort of things are you looking for? Mickey, you go first on that one. I think I'm looking for personality. Um, no, that, that when I say personality, I'm not, not all personality shows its way in various ways, but I'm looking for someone that really wants to play the game, has a real enthusiasm for the game, so you're not having to prompt them to play. You're looking for movement mechanics, for sure, in a younger player. You're looking for... Um, you know, because movement mechanics make everything come together uh, much quicker. You know, if you're working on any ball domination exercises, a boy that has good movement mechanics will pick things up very, very quickly. So I think you're looking for that. But I think you're looking for a personality enthusiasm to play the game, and then you have to you have to make that call of whether you think you can take this boy on a journey, whether you can go on that journey with him. And that's again another advice I would give to to coaches working academies that when a trialist comes in. You know, you have to really buy into the journey with the player. Do you think that the journey is a long journey? And if it isn't, there will be another club for that player, I believe, and another club, another circumstance where they can go on a journey with them. Because, um, you know, that's very, very important to player development, that they have people around them that believe in their journey and can kick them on. And, you know, you talk about players being released from one club, going to another club and go and do fantastically well. That's not because they're not good enough to play in one club or another. It's just a different set of circumstances. I worry about that now in the EPP where a boy signs for a club and he cannot leave unless his dad's got the money to buy him out or a club that has. Because we all know that it's about pathway and how and having... Um, this is why I say that the adults have to open the doors because you, it's just about the journey and continuing on the journey without... And without too many bumps, I think you can put one or two bumps in the road that you can you can you can put in there to help develop the player develop. But you know the most important thing is the player's playing, that he's happy, that he sees himself moving forward. And so when you're looking at a young player, movement mechanics first, personality in terms of does he really want to play the game, and then the decision of marrying it together with do you think there's a pathway here and. And do you think that you can go on a journey with a player? Because if you if you do think that, it will be a wonderful journey. Danny, your thoughts on that, mate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of my, my sort of hobbies is, is psychology. And boys that are coming in, they, they've got to have a growth mindset for me. They've got to have that ability to, to, to look at a situation, as I said, get things wrong, as I mentioned earlier on in the, uh, in the chat. And... and see that as a learning opportunity and not get too frustrated and too angry. I mean, still want to get better, show desire to want to get better, but really understand that for them to get to where they want to get to, they're going to have to have a lot of a lot of opportunities to make mistakes, and they're going to make mistakes. And it's how they, they bounce back from that, how resilient they are. Do, do, they, do they see this as an opportunity to really go and work hard and become a better player? Or... Do they do they find it tough and and you know some sports not for everyone just like just like all business isn't for everyone because you're going to come up against hurdles and we've all seen that illustration of the ideal journey from A to B is a nice straight line and and, 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 a, and a nice sort of clean hill and then the reality is he's going to fall down holes and he's going to have to climb up trees and he's they're going to have to do things that 
um, are going to take them right outside their comfort zone. So for me, there's a big personality side of it comes into it, and, and a real resilience to, you know what, I want to be a football player, and I want to improve, I want to get better, and I understand that, you know what, these are the things that I'm going to have to do to do it. Now, obviously, depending on what age group they come in, will depend whether they, they, they've already got those skills or whether they need an environment where you're going to hone those skills so you can give them that freedom. Um, because when they come to you, you'd like to think that your recruitment department have bought you a player that's got potential or got attributes, and then it's down to you to, to try to kind of implement all the, all the polishing. Nice one, excellent. So, uh, just a couple more questions, lads. I know you guys are both very busy men. So, um, just how do you get kids to practice like they would do in a real game? What sort of strategies would you use to try and, you know, motivate your kids? And bear in mind, you know, what advice would you give to grassroots uh, coaches as well? Bear in mind, you guys obviously work at a top level. It might be a little bit easier for you guys. Danny, do you want to go first with that? Yeah, I'll, I'll do the academy side of it first. I mean, we've all played under good coaches and one of the best sort of quotes if you want I ever had is you, you need to work harder than you, in training than you do in a game because at the end of the day you want to be able to go into a game situation and, and, and be able to not be comfortable because we, we all know that depending on the opposition will depend on how comfortable you are but you, you shouldn't come across anything that that's going to be too physically demanding to you whether that's going into extra time or that, that mentality side of having to deal with penalties so the sessions that, that I like to try and put on and create a, a real, real high tempo um, and they're, they're, they're physically demanding, they're mentally demanding in, in the types of practices that we do, that the players have really got to be focused, they've got to be switched on. Mick said about reactions earlier and making sure they're reacting quickly and efficiently to what we're doing. Um, obviously balancing that up with opportunities to, to, to work on their, their, their technical side of the game. But it, it we all know it's almost impossible to, to recreate a, a, a game situation unless you play the game. So as many opportunities to get these, these boys in situations where it's competitive. Um, we talked about winning earlier and making sure the boys have got something they want to play for in the training sessions because I think that's key. Lots of sessions you see, there's possessions put on. They don't score a goal. There's no goals for them to be able to score. They're, they're non-directional. The, the boys don't really understand. Right, okay, so... What I've made 10 passes, what does that mean? And they, they, you know what all the boys are like these days, they want to win everything. So whether it's putting in a passing rule, a bit of a directional practice, it's making sure that it's competitive because that's when you really start to see those those dominant players coming out. With regards to grassroots, it's it, as, as, as we alluded to earlier, it, with the limited time that they have, the best thing for them to do is is to let these these kids play games and, and get them in a situation where you, you, you put the facility on and you facilitate the, the, the match for them and, and get them playing because the more and more they play, the more and more it will relate itself to the game that they play on a Saturday or a Sunday. Mickey, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I'll tell you a little story. I have a, I have a terrible or, or really bad moment uh, in when I was at Liverpool with the under-23 squad, we'd gone through a bad moment of losing a couple of games, which was unlike us on the bounce. And and from that become a beautiful moment because we had a conversation with the players about, okay, what environment, what, what, what's changed when we want to get back? And what changed at the time was the players moving all over the place, whether it be loans, first team, and maybe some minds have moved. But what they decided in training was that they wanted to be more competitive and you know, everyone talks about the scouts mentality, but it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. I feel privileged to have worked in it. And what the young boys come up with was that in any training game, if you was ever three 0 down, they wanted us to stop the game, and they wanted the other team to do to run, to have a forfeit. And I was a bit skeptical about it because you know it's, it's one of them. It's like, well, it's a bit barbaric. But I tell you, I only used it once or twice in a whole year after that, and it was their rule. So whenever you did, we were ever 3 nil down, you know, 77, 5-5, 11-11, could be <coughs> a 6-6, four-goal game. They were never 3 nil down. It only happened one or twice. So you're talking about over 100, maybe 150 sessions. So they set themselves a rule or a boundary that sort of brought everything together. Everything we've been speaking about today in terms of mentality, intensity to train, and focus to train, the winning mentality, the players brought it. So I would always lose two games now if I was ever going to get that back in terms of having a, a group that's self, 
uh, regulate himself and, and give him that. And in terms of running, it was more like short, sharp doggies. It was, it was difficult because then you have to go straight back on the pitch and start again. And if you were never 3-0 down again, and it wasn't the other team playing pity on them because it becomes very competitive then because the other team want to score that third goal. And I just felt that that group was special and that's why players came out of that group. And that's why so many have gone on to make debuts and they're around Liverpool's first team now and playing. But I think that's something that you can use with, with any age group. I don't think, I, I would say in grassroots, it's probably more the case. And that's why I say setting the boundaries for training and the environment is so important. And there's so many things that go into being a, a top coach. And, and I don't want anyone listening to think that you, you need to have these things all at the same time. You, know, you get these things to experience and you've got to go on your little journey or your journey as a coach and pick up things as you move. But in personality to inspire is really important and setting the boundaries of training is really important. You know, because until I come across that, that group of players at Liverpool and they come up with that idea to raise their own standards in the session, I'd never thought of that myself. And what a fantastic idea that them young players come up with. Brilliant. And guys, thank you very much. It's been fantastic. Danny Sell, Mickey Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.